I'm Henry Lowendorf, Chair of the Greater New Haven Peace Council and member of the Executive Board of the U.S. Peace Council. I'm very pleased to have been asked to moderate this webinar, Haiti versus Imperialism and Neocolonialism, yesterday and today. Our speakers today are Professors Jemima Pierre and Gerald Horn. Haitian-born Jemima Pierre is the Haiti America's Coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. She's also Associate Professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, with a joint appointment in the Department of African American Studies and the Department of Anthropology. Concurrently, Professor Pierre is a research associate at the inaugural Center for the Study of Race, Gender, and Class at the University of Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Pierre researches and writes on global racial formations, political economy, African culture and politics, Haitian culture and politics, and transnational migration. Our second speaker, Gerald Horn, is an American historian who currently holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He has published, at my count, 34 books, 10 in just the last six years. The most relevant to today's conversation is entitled Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. Horn is published from a Marxist perspective on neglected, but by no means marginal or minor episodes of world history. He writes about topics he perceives as misrepresented struggles for justice, in particular, communist struggles and struggles against imperialism, colonialism, fascism, racism, and white supremacy. Gerald Horn will lead off providing historical background the roots of U.S. antipathy to Haiti, including the revolution from 1791 to 1804, and the impact of that revolution on slavery in the U.S. itself. Jemima Pierre will follow with an update on current events and trends. Following that, our speakers will respond to questions. So now I turn the platform over to Gerald Horn. Yes, thank you to the U.S. Peace Council for inviting me for this important webinar. And thank you to Professor Pierre for joining us today. I'm pleased and delighted with her presence. From the late 18th century, uh, there were two interlinked, profound political processes unfolding. On the one hand, we saw France go into debt to fund a revolt led by slaveholders in North America. This revolt was a, quote, success, unquote, uh, leading to the formation of the resultant United States of America, which quickly surged into the lead of captaining the global African slave trade, dominating the slave trade to Cuba as early as the 1790s, and also increasing its own enslaved population by several orders of magnitude, this victory by slave owners was also an ideological victory, a massive ideological victory. Insofar as even today, you have those who consider themselves to be radical and revolutionary who salute what happened in North America post-1776, despite the fact that it led to mass genocide against the indigenous population 
and mass enslavement of the African population. There was another profound political process also unfolding as a result of France going into debt. I'm not only speaking of the French Revolution, uh, circa 1789, but also the revolutionary process that unfolds on an island oftentimes referred to as Hispaniola, which seeks to recoup the manic exploitation inflicted on Africans as a result of France trying to generate more profit to address its debt. I'm speaking of the Haitian Revolution, initiated in August 1791, and a, quote, success, unquote, by 1804. You need to realize that the Haitian Revolution was a victory for the enslaved in the first instance, not only the enslaved on that particular island, but the enslaved in the Americas generally. It was a successful revolt of the enslaved, one of the few in world history. It was a victory for all those who worked for a living as slavery, particularly in North America, but not only in North America, tended to drive down the wage level and worsen the working conditions of all working class people. It's no accident that after the abolition of slavery in the United States circa 1865, you had a surge in organizing of unions and the surge in the movement for an eight-hour day. The Haitian Revolution represented a general crisis of the entire slave system in the Americas that could only be resolved with its collapse, which of course took place in Brazil by 1888. It was particularly inspiring in North America. Uh, You may know that the revolt known as Gabriel's Revolt in Virginia in 1800 was directly inspired by the Haitian Revolution. You may know that the revolt in South Carolina, spearheaded by Denmark Vesey, a seafarer, was also directly inspired by the Haitian Revolution. And as a seafarer, it's possible that Denmark Vesey himself might have sailed into Haiti at one point or another before launching this revolt in South Carolina. You may also know that the early historians of the revolt of Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831 argued that part of Nat Turner's crew were Africans who had been brought to Virginia by fleeing slave owners in the wake of the success of the Haitian Revolution. These Africans had seen the slave owners flee in terror from the Caribbean and wanted to replicate that model in Virginia. It's also striking to note that on May 25th, 2021, the Washington Post had a fascinating story about a Black community on Maryland's eastern shore known as San Domingo. It was constituted, or it still is constituted, I should say, of Africans who had fled to that part of North America from the Caribbean as a result of the tumult in what became Haiti between 1791 and 1804, 
and establish what could fairly be called a maroon community that continues to exist that is far off the beaten track and even today is difficult to reach. You also see the impact of the Haitian Revolution in North America by the fact that so many Black Americans upon freedom took the surname of either Mingo or Domingo, that is to say referring to the Caribbean site where this revolutionary process unfolded. Uh, Some of the football fans may be familiar with Gene Mingo, a Black American who is still with us and is regarded as the first Black American place kicker in U.S. football. More relevant to events today is the Black American actor Coleman Domingo, currently starring in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and also appearing in the previous movie, If Bill Street Could Talk. You may be familiar with the fact that so many Black neighborhoods in the United States are referred to as Haiti, H-A-Y-T-I, which was the older uh, designation or descriptor for what we now call Haiti or Haiti. Speaking in the first instance of the Haiti community of Durham, North Carolina, it's also important to describe and sketch the impact of the Haitian Revolution on the global correlation of forces. The Haitian Revolution forced London, the then reigning superpower, to speed up its abolitionist process, abolishing its role in the African slave trade by 1807 and abolishing its role in enslavement of Africans in the Caribbean, Jamaica, Barbados, etc. by 1833-1834, uh, London recognized uh, much sooner than its revolting spawn, now known as the United States of America, that as a result of the Haitian Revolution, a process had been ignited that could not only lead to the liquidation of the lives of settlers and slave owners in the Caribbean, but more importantly, to them at least, the liquidation of their investments. Because we know that like successful revolutionaries anywhere and everywhere, the Haitian revolutionaries recognized that their process was not safe as long as enslavement of Africans pertained and existed in the neighborhood. And so there is credible evidence to suggest that in particular, the Haitian revolutionaries helped to ignite a revolutionary revolt of the enslaved in Britain's chief colony, chief cash cow, speaking of Barbados, not to mention that one of the leaders of the earliest stage of the Haitian revolutionary process, speaking of Dutty, was Jamaican and is given credit Bookman Duddy for helping to light the fire itself. From that point forward, you, you saw a de facto alliance between revolutionary Haiti and abolitionists in London. Uh, they helped to put pressure on the independent state known as Texas, which seceded from Mexico in 1836, just like slave owners in North America generally had seceded from London in 1776. That is to say, seceding from Mexico because Mexico, under a president of African descent, Vicente Guerrero, had moved to abolish slavery in Mexico. And rather than accede to that decision, 
uh, Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin, and the other cutthroats and bandits who formed independent Haiti set up an independent republic, so-called. It's important to note that during its brief existence, between 1836 and 1845, independent Texas quickly became one of the most prolific slave-trading nations in the hemisphere. The Lone Star flag of Texas, independent Texas, could be found off the coast of Brazil, off the coast of Angola, and of course, off the coast of Cuba, with Galveston, Texas being a major slave port. And indeed, as late as 1860, Texas, which was forced under pressure from Haiti and Britain to join the United States in 1845, but as late as 1860, in Galveston, Texas, you had reports of hundreds of Congolese being smuggled into Galveston to labor as enslaved people. We also know that after the freebooter and pirate William Walker and his band of cutthroats invaded Nicaragua in the 1850s and sought to reestablish slavery in Nicaragua, which had been barred in the 1830s, it was pressure in the first instance from Haiti and abolitionists in London that led Mr. Walker to be forced out of power. And we also know that a man who until recently was honored by a massive statue in Richmond, Virginia, I'm speaking of the Confederate leader, Matthew Fontaine Maury, oftentimes regarded as the father of U.S. oceanography, in the 1840s, he had the idea that somehow the Mississippi River Valley was connected to the Amazon River Valley in Brazil. And so therefore, the United States should seize the Amazon River Valley and then deport Black people from the United States as enslaved workers to the Amazon River Valley. He, of course, not only was opposed by Haiti and Britain, but he was also opposed by numerous slave traders who thought that the better idea was to kidnap Africans from Congo, Angola, and Mozambique and drag them into Brazil to become enslaved workers. And indeed, it's important to note that as late as 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation, President Abraham Lincoln was negotiating with the Brazilians to deport all of the U.S. Negroes to Brazil. What happened, of course, is that Brazil said, thank you very much, we have enough Black people, and therefore Mr. Lincoln was stymied. But it was not all victories and successes for the Haitian Revolution. And one of the most important and stunning victories for covert action in Washington, anticipating so-called victories of covert action in Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 1954, In 1844, the United States worked with forces on the eastern side of the island that Haiti shares to initiate and ignite a split in the island that led to the formation of the Dominican Republic. But alas, in 1861, when the U.S. Civil War was started by slave owners who sought to overthrow the Lincoln government so as to enslave Africans forevermore, The slave owners were backed, at least informally, by the French merchant class, the Spanish merchant class in Cuba, 
the British merchant class in Mexico. And indeed, you may know that France had seized control over Mexico shortly after the U.S. Civil War began. And one of the reasons why that conflict lasted so long was because these European merchants supplied the slave owners from their base, particularly in Tampico, Mexico, and sending goods, including munitions, to Galveston and other places in Texas, which escaped from the U.S. Civil War relatively unscathed. The Haitian government, of course, stood against these diabolical schemes, and the Haitian government was one of the few allies, one of the few clear allies that the United States had when it was subjected to this traitor's rebellion. But that did not necessarily bring favors and benefits to the Haitian government, not least because shortly after the revolution triumphed in 1804, the Haitian government was saddled by a reparations bill from France. That is to say, not that the enslaved were compensated with reparations for working for centuries for free, but that the slave owners who lost their investments when the enslaved revolted were compensated. And that debt saddled the government of Haiti with an unconscionable burden that arguably has hampered the Haitian government to this very day. By way of comparison, keep in mind that after Britain abolished slavery in Jamaica, Barbados, etc., in the 1830s, it too compensated the slave owners. And as recently as 2015, the descendants of the slave owners were still being repaid by London for losing their investments when slavery was abolished. I should also mention that Haiti, particularly during the era of slavery and U.S. apartheid or Jim Crow, absorbed thousands of Black Americans who were fleeing from terror and, of course, whose descendants still continue to reside in Haiti. You should also know that the United States, in a sense, in a typical fashion, sought to repay Haiti after Haiti had supported the United States government during the Civil War by seeking to seize a major Haitian port in order to establish a U.S. military base. And then finally, in 1915, Haiti was occupied by forces from the United States government, an occupation that lasted for two decades, more or less, and which further hampered and hindered the ability of Haiti to develop. On that point, I will stop and turn the platform over to my dear friend and comrade, Professor Pierre. Thank you so much, Professor Horn. I'm honored to be here with you all, and thank you for the U.S. Peace Council for inviting me. And I'm going to talk about what's going on right now in Haiti, and then we can go back and have a discussion. So on February 7, 2021, the five-year presidential term of Haiti's Jovenel Moise was set to expire. Moise, however, has refused to step down. And in response, oppositional parties, local civil society groups, including students, feminist groups, various clergy, have called for his immediate ouster. 
So back in February, there were calls for a general strike along with anti-government protests. In response, Moyes, who has effectively ruled by decree since January 2020, fired a number of Supreme Court justices, including the president designated by the oppositional political parties. Now, how Haiti arrived at this moment is predictable and unsurprising. Moise's election was marred by fraud, extremely low voter turnout, and protests challenging his candidacy. Relatively unknown, Moise entered the political arena in 2015 when he was handpicked by his predecessor, Michel Martelly, a compa performer who was an open supporter of the Duvalier dictatorship and who himself was installed against the wishes of the people in 2011 by Hillary Clinton of the Obama administration. As with Martelly, Moise's path to the Haitian presidency was paid by U.S., Canadian, and French funding and support. Moise claimed to have won the 2015 elections, but the results were nulled after widespread allegations of voter fraud sparked protests around the country. Now, runoff elections were not held until November 2016, and with less than 21% of the Haitian population turning out to vote, Moise again claimed victory. Now, this is where the Constitution comes in, and this is what he's using to not step down from power. Now, according to Article 134.1 of the 1987 Haitian Constitution, the five-year term of the president begins and ends on February 7th, following the date of the elections. However, Article 134.2 of the Constitution states that if there are delays in the election, the president elected enters his functions immediately after the validation of the ballot. And his mandate is considered to have commenced the 7th of February of the year of the election. So in Moise's case, since his initial election was validated November 2016, after a delay from 2015, his term, according to the Constitution, began February 2016, not February 2017. And this is important to remember. And members of Haitian civil society, including the Haitian Bar Federation, have argued since Moise's term began in 2016 it should end in 2021. Moise has rejected this argument, claiming that his term in office ends in 2022. So at this point, most people in Haiti think that Moise is legitimate president of Haiti and he's, he's running without any mandate. But Moise has never had a clear mandate to govern. He has been an unpopular figure in Haiti and his government has been met with massive protests long before this year. And there were massive protests in 2016, and in 2018 and in 2019, there were some of the biggest protests, which lasted weeks and months, shutting down the country. Moise has been accused of money laundering, of embezzling Petro-Caribe funds, which we can talk about in the question and answer. And he has been linked to a failed plot to steal $80 million from Haiti's central bank. In addition to expanding the reviled Haitian army, Moise has established a new and powerful national intelligence agency, which is reminiscent of the Duvalier's notorious Tonto Makut. State-sponsored gang violence has also been a feature of Moise's rule, including the horrific La Saline massacre. But most disturbing is Moise's attempt to rewrite the Haitian constitution of 1987, which would redirect most power to the presidency while providing full immunity to the president during and after his term. The referendum for a new constitution the vote planned for June 27th of this year has raised fear among the Haitian populace that Haiti is returning to a dictatorship similar to the 29-year brutal Duvalier dictatorship. Most recently, massive 
anti-government protests and anti-imperial protests were reignited from late January. They were massive during the month of March and April. And though they have tempered off over the past month because of growing state and armed gang violence, the people continue to make the same demands. Millions have called for the resignation of the corrupt and anti-democratic figure of the illegitimate president, Jovenel Moise. Now, significantly, and I will talk about this in just a short while, the protests have also drawn attention to a number of imperialist entities that have been and continue to play extremely influential roles in Haiti's current political crisis. These entities are the core group, the United Nations, the U.S. State Department, and the institution of the Organization of the American States. The latest protests have been against this referendum that Moise is trying to use to change the Constitution, specifically what continued the call for Moise's ouster and against imperial meddling. While the protests have been against Moise, I argue that it's actually too easy to just focus on Moise. And as calls for his removal increase, as he's seen as the dictator in the making, many critics, especially Western critics, have fallen into the typical trap when it comes to Haiti. Focusing on this one individual, what I call the Black Death Spot, right, as a source and root of all evil in Haiti's politics. By doing so, we don't raise the important questions about how Moïse came to power, how he has been able to get away with his increasingly autocratic actions, and how even now he continues to survive calls for his ouster, let alone the curtailment of his powers. So to ask these questions is to recognize that Moïse is not a purely sovereign political force. Instead, he is the product of a broader system blocking Haiti's democratic path to sovereignty, a system that is built and maintained by white Western imperialism. But to understand how this functions, white Western imperialism in Haiti, is to recognize that Haiti has been under foreign military rule and continues to be under foreign political control. And I call this of the second occupation. Now, the second occupation following the first occupation from 1915 to 1934 comes after two in 1991 and in 2004, U.S., France, Canada-backed coup d'etat against the country's first democratically elected popular president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. We must remember how the first formal occupation of Haiti by the U.S. from 1915 to 1934 was meant to snuff out Haitian sovereignty. After the U.S. Marines landed in Haiti in the summer of 1915, they initiated a period of military rule that would last two decades. Once the occupation began, it was rationalized as a necessary measure to presumably teach Haitians the art of self-government. In the short term, the most pronounced labor of the Marines was counterinsurgency. And this sounds familiar to most of you, I'm sure. They waged a, what they called a pacification campaign through the Haitian countryside to suppress a peasant uprising known as the Kako Rebellion against the occupation. And the U.S. perfected its aerial bombardment techniques on Haitian villages starting in 1919. It left thousands dead and countless others tortured, maimed, and forced into labor camps. But in the process, the U.S. government was able to rewrite the Haitian constitution, which after the Haitian Revolution prohibited foreigners from owning land. The U.S. reversed this in their new constitution, written, by the way, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who served as assistant secretary to the U.S. Navy back in 1918. So the current occupation, which began in 2004, should also give us some pause. 
Representatives of Canada, France, and the U.S. secretly met in Ottawa, Canada in 2003 to come up with a plan to depose Haiti's democratically elect president, a project that they ensured was successful by February 29, 2004, the year of the 200th anniversary of the Haitian independence. What is egregious about the U.S., France, Canada-sponsored 2004 coup d'etat, followed by a military invasion from these countries, was that these white Western countries' abilities to use their power on the UN Security Council to have the UN provide cover for these terrible acts by dispatching a so-called peacekeeping mission to Haiti under a Chapter 7 mandate. And now we know the Chapter 7 mandate means that the UN can use force. It assumes that a country is at war and the UN can use force. And so the, this peacekeeping mission is a multinational brutal military occupation that has both a civilian and military component. And it is under the auspices of the United Nations with changing acronyms and shifting mandates over the years from MINIPU, MINISTA, and now to BINU. I forgot the acronym, but I'll get that for you soon. It is an occupation that is led and controlled by a group of Western nations and Western-dominated institutions, the U.S., France, Canada, the United Nations, the OAS. Through this occupation, there is a designation of the core group, a group composed of special representatives from the UN Secretary General and the Organization of American States, as well as ambassadors from Brazil, Canada, France, Spain, and the European Union and the US. So the core group appointed itself as arbiters of Haitian politics. Neither neutral nor passive, the core group plays an active interventionist role in Haiti's everyday political affairs. It has worked to extend and protect foreign economic interests in Haiti and has consistently intervened in Haiti's sovereign political affairs, often without the collaboration or consent of the Haitian government. Importantly, there is no prescribed term limit on the core group's mandate. Theoretically, it could be in place in perpetuity. Now, along with the core group, there is a significant role of the Organization of the American States, the OAS, which has worked as an extension of U.S. power in Haiti. Now, while the OAS's charter expressly states that it should not interfere in the internal jurisdiction of member states, the organization has directly intervened in Haitian elections, particularly in 2010 and 2015 and 16. Most recently, the OAS has supported the presidency of Jovenel Moise and right-wing OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro issued a statement affirming Moise's illegal claim that his term ends on February 2022. OAS interference in Haiti's electoral process on behalf of the U.S. over the past two presidential elections, election cycles, specifically where it changed election results, for example, in 2011, and interfered with vote counting, this has contributed to the current constitutional and political crisis in the country. Thus, without the backing of these significant entities, the United Nations, the OAS, the U.S. State Department, Moise would not be in power in the first place. But now he will not still be in power after his term ends. So a perfect example of this is these entities' quiet support of Moise's attempts to change the Constitution. So as Jake Johnson of the Center for Economic and Policy Research recently reported, both the UN and the OAS are actively providing support for the referendum, despite public statements otherwise. So they have provided technical assistance to the commission tasked with drafting the new text, 
since it was formed last fall. The OAS helped with revisions to the text in an attempt to remove some of the more controversial aspects of the original. The UN, meanwhile, has helped to procure sensitive voting materials for the Electoral Council overseeing the referendum and has an agreement in place to provide logistics for holding the vote. And the UN is also supposedly helping to advise the national police on electoral security during the referendum vote. So what's in it for the U.S., the U.N., the OAS? Why is Haiti so significant? And so for here, I will follow um, Professor Horn, who's like, there's the matter of the Haitian Revolution. Haiti has never been forgiven for shattering, if only for a short time. The belief in white supremacy and the making of the white enslavers and putting them into a panic. But second, the UN-led occupation forces were deployed as proxy enforcers of U.S. regional policy. This regional policy has a number of parts. Now, one key mission seems to be to destroy the remnants of the popular movement that has first brought Aristide to power in 1990 and to promote the interests of so-called business-friendly Haitian transnational bourgeoisie. In brief, to further the neoliberal economic agenda that has subtended U.S. foreign policy in the Caribbean and Latin America. Thus, in 2011, the Haiti Liberté, this Haitian magazine, and The Nation published leaked diplomatic cables between Washington and the U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince that had been obtained by WikiLeaks. In those cables, the then U.S. Ambassador Janice Sanderson noted, quote, the U.N. stabilizing mission in Haiti is an indispensable tool in realizing the core U.S. government policy interest in Haiti. These interests include suppressing resurgent populist and anti-market economy and political forces. This is how she describes it, resurgent populist and anti-market economy political forces. So the Moise government, as well as the party set up by his predecessor, opens up the space for the U.S. in particular. In fact, the economic plans of this government, if you notice, are in four areas. In the textile sector, which is the idea of setting up cheap labor for multinational corporations in these extractive zones. The second part of the plan is agriculture, which is monocrop development and exploitation, single crop. And the most recent example of that is the Moise government giving Coca-Cola thousands of hectares of land to grow stevia, the sweetener used in Coca-Cola. The third economic development plan that the government has set up for Haiti is in mining. And as we see, Haiti is filled with a lot of minerals and gold mining is at the top. So the Canadian mining companies are already in Haiti. And one small note is the, one of the first mining contracts after the invasion of the foreign troops in Haiti was given to Hillary Clinton's brother, who doesn't mind but had a contract. And then the fourth economic policy setup for Haiti is tourism. These economic plans are being used to complete what the imperialist U.S. started in 1915 and could not complete. And that was to transform Haitians back into virtual slave labor. To accomplish this requires the takeover of land by the peasants. The majority of the country still engages in agriculture. But what these economic plans are set up to do is to transfer the people's lands to international corporations, while at the same time alienating the masses from their land to create a hungry and needy workforce, which can no longer feed itself and independent on wage labor. Now, another key mission for the U.S., is to use Haiti to control the Caribbean basin in preparation for its confrontation with China, as well as to stop growing leftist movements in Latin America. Thus, under Moise, Haiti, for the very first time, voted against the Venezuelan government 
and recognized the non-entity Wan Guaido. Haiti also recognized Taiwan. So Haiti is also geographically perfect position for U.S. imperial power. Keep in mind that the fourth largest U.S. embassy was built in Haiti under this occupation. And the various fortified structures built by the U.N. occupying forces throughout the country remain under their control. So Moise is currently serving his purpose, which is why he continues to get support. At the same time, I think, continuing popular resistance is to be expected. Thank you. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Jamima. And thank you, Gerald, for those excellent presentations. We have a bunch of questions, but before I go to those questions, I want to just say that I forgot to include in Gerald's bio the fact that he is also a member of the Executive Committee of the U.S. Peace Council, which organized this webinar. So let us go to some of these questions. The first one has to do with some historical information. This question is, what about the anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist aspects of the revolutionary movement in North America in the later 1700s? Are these movements minor when compared to the dominance of slavocracy? I take it that question is directed to myself. And in order to respond, I I would have to be apprised of these alleged anti-imperialism, anti-colonial aspects. I will say this. (laughs) So the United States was supporting movements against Spain in Mexico and elsewhere in order that they could seize Mexican territory. I'm, in fact, speaking to you from what used to be Mexican territory, speaking of Texas, including waging a war on Mexico in 1846 to 1848, which led to the seizing of California, now the most populous and apparently richest state in the Union, And I think there's been a certain kind of naivete to be euphemistic with regard to the analysis of this imperial power. I think that there were so many Europeans who were persecuted in Europe and found a sort of haven and refuge in North America that somehow they did not notice that there was a genocide unfolding and that there was mass enslavement of Africans unfolding. I mean, you would think from some of these analyses of the United States that these Europeans, as they were crossing the Atlantic, that they were conspiring against the shipmaster so that they could join Native American resistance and African resistance. Well, you know, even the movies haven't gone that far. So I'm not sure why alleged left wing analysts would go that far. I would also point out that right now, as we speak, there is a fiery debate in the United States about the question of history. On the one side, you'll see uh, Raul Peck, the black filmmaker in his HBO documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes. You'll see the debate about the New York Times 1619 project. You'll see the response to the Broadway Disney extravaganza Hamilton by the paramount black intellectual Ishmael Reed. You'll see the recent book by leading black intellectual Tyler Stovall entitled White Freedom which I think is an appropriate descriptor for what unfolded in North America. And on the other hand, you see attempts by legislatures from the Atlantic to the Pacific to circumscribe the accurate teaching of slavery 
in particular and genocide against Native Americans. So they think it makes the United States look bad. And so they don't want it to be taught in classrooms. That's going to be a major campaign issue in 2022 uh, going forward. And in fact, in yesterday's New York Times, the alleged liberal columnist Timothy Egan points out that so-called critical race theory is weakening the opposition to the ascendant right wing. And so I guess he would also want that kind of uh, teaching circumscribed. And also, Henry, your fellow New Haven person, the Douglas biographer, David Blight, he wrote in The New Yorker, reprimanding the 1619 Project, comparing it to Donald Trump's 1776 Project. And so our alleged liberal friends, they're getting, as usual, weak in the knees in the face of an assault from the right wing. But I have a message for those who are getting weak in the knees and are raising bogus points about alleged revolutionary potential, which, by the way, the rights only apply to those of European descent. It certainly didn't apply to people like me. I have a message that we're not retreating, we're not yielding, we're not bending, and we're going to win. I think that needs to be broadcast across the country. If we had a big loudspeaker, I would certainly be uh, happy to broadcast that. We have some more questions. Here's one. The people of the world owe so much to the people of Haiti. What do today's speakers feel that we should focus on in order to best support the people of Haiti? Well, the the thing that people in the U.S. need to focus on is the U.S. government and the State Department's continued intervention and continued gangsterism in Haiti and in the region. What's have been holding up Haiti from the very beginning since since the revolution is the counter, you know, as a Professor Hong would call it, the counter-revolution, right? And all the ways that the U.S. in particular, but also its Western brothers, really have try to snuff out this hard-won sovereignty. And what's happening now is, you know, the fact that they can go in and use the OAS and the UN to install presidents and make statements and decide on Haitian policy and so on tells us that we need to begin here in the U.S. within within the imperial core and demand that they withdraw from these other places because that's the only way to do it. And in particular, there is a responsibility among the African-descended populations to really tease out what's going on in Haiti, especially now that we have so many Black faces in high places, right? Within the Imperial Corps, you have the UN ambassador is a Black woman, you have the head of the Pentagon is a Black man, the vice president is a Black woman. So how do we deal with the reality that imperialism is intersectional? And then how do we then focus on imperialism from within the Imperial Corps? Thank you for that. Here's another question. In light of America's exploitative history with Haiti since, since America's fight for independence and economic growth from the slave trade, what do you think about Haiti being included in the discussion of how USA pays reparations to African descendants of the Atlantic slave trade? I think ultimately this discussion about reparations, if it's going to be successful and meaningful, is going to have to be globalized. If you look at the history of Black people in particular in the United States, and this should be a tip-off, it seems to me, that when we've attained victories, it's not necessarily been because of our fellow denizens of North America. It's mostly been because of global correlation of forces. 
Uh, that's the reason why you had U.S. apartheid begin to retreat after World War II, because the United States was in this conflict with the socialist camp for hearts and minds in the developing world, particularly resource-rich Africa. U.S. Jim Crow was an Achilles heel with regard to the execution of U.S. foreign policy. So therefore, there was an agonizing retreat from the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow. I just explained how slavery retreated, not least because of a global abolitionist movement spearheaded by abolitionists in London and Haitian revolutionaries. And likewise, with regard to this third stage of reparations, uh, to me, it will not achieve liftoff unless it's globalized. And certainly that would mean, for example, not only our weighing in on the recent milquetoast statement by the German foreign minister, Heiko Maas, in Namibia, German Southwest Africa, offering pennies and reparations to the Herero and Nama people who were subjected to the first genocide of the 20th century in what is now Namibia. We should be linking arms, obviously, with our friends in the Caribbean community, which includes Haiti, uh, which are in particular pressing London for reparations. So this movement for reparations needs to be uh, generalized. It needs to be globalized. And ultimately, these North Atlantic powers are going to have to pool their resources. That is to say, those who are meeting as we speak in Cornwall, England, that is to say, United States, Canada, Britain, France in particular, are going to have to pool their resources and dole out compensation and reparations, not only to the descendants of the enslaved in North America, for which London and Washington are principally responsible, but also to our Haitian friends, who, of course, were forced, as noted, to pay out reparations to French residents. But now the reparations have to be coming in the other direction from Paris. Thank you for that. We have a question concerning your advice for U.S. supporters of Haitian liberation. And a second part of that question is, can we single out support for COVID vaccination in Haiti? One of the things that I think, especially liberal America, the inability to see these institutions as Western-centric and imperialist and white supremacist institutions such as the United Nations, institutions such as the OES and the EU, NATO, as well as the G7, right? And so if we begin by understanding that these institutions were structured in the moment, in the moment of decolonization, in the moment to find a way to maintain European Western hegemony, then we can understand why it is that the UN is so involved in snuffing out Haitian sovereignty, the OAS plays the role of, you know, for the US. And so the point then is to, we have to actually begin by questioning this idea of the international community as something that's benevolent. So we have to question the NGOs. We have to question all of this. And the U.S. controls, the U.S. power over all these institutions should actually give us all pause to make us wonder what it is that it's in it for the U.S. to actually support certain organizations over the other. Because the U.S., for example, is not a member of the ICC, even though it controls, you know, who who goes there. So the first thing is to actually really start discussions within the U.S. about 
what it is that's wrong with these institutions, how it is that these institutions reflect white supremacy, and then start fighting against these particular institutions. And so the UN headquarters is in New York. The OAS is in Washington, D.C. We can always go protest these places. We can always bring attention to the fact that actually it's not just Moise. It's these organizations that are working on behalf of the U.S. And the international community itself is a very white supremacist understanding of what international community is. And I think that's where we should begin, because if we don't do that, we can't do anything else in terms of helping Haiti. Helping Haiti means removing the boot off its people's neck, right? And so, and the boot is the international community. So that's the thing. That's the first thing. The other thing is, is to think about, well, COVID, I'm not sure, you know, seeing a lot of support for COVID vaccination, you know, we have COVID apartheid. And what we have is, it's not just Haiti, it's the entire so-called global South, right? The non-Western world that's been left out of access to vaccine and access to resources to create their own vaccine. And that's, that links actually to my first answer. And we have to go back to, well, how is it that the World Trade Organization can allow this to happen? How is it that IP laws get to be deployed in ways that make this world starkly even more unequal than it is? And then we need to fight all of that. And so the fight actually begins with trying to destroy and reorganize these so-called international institutions and actually really have more democratic institutions that are global and that are about the well-being of all people instead of just these tiny little Western countries that continue to run them. So here's another question. I believe that a strong partnership between Haitians and African-Americans can be part of the answer to dismantling anti-Black racism in the Western hemisphere. How do you think that these communities can help each other to break free from the oppression of white supremacist capitalism, particularly exerted by the USA and France? Well, I'll lead off. I mean, I think that that's obligatory. It's mandatory. Uh, However, I think part of the problem is that part of the trade-off, what I call the Compromise of 1954, when in return for anti-Jim Crow concessions to the Black community, we were forced, or some were forced, to throw overboard our most internationalist cadre, speaking of the great Paul Robeson in the first instance. And since that time, the internationalism in the Black community has waxed and waned, particularly given the fact that the Compromise of 1954 also compelled the weakening of those to the left of liberalism, Uh, leaving instead two major ideological trends in Black America, which in the U.S. context are welcome, speaking of liberalism and Black nationalism. But I'm not sure that either trend is sufficiently capable to engage in the kind of global spade work that the question seems to suggest is necessary. I mean, right now we're approaching Juneteenth, which is going to mark this holiday, new holiday about emancipation of Black people from slavery. And Juneteenth, in some ways, exposes the ideological weaknesses in the Black community. In the first instance, I welcome Juneteenth. But in the second instance, it it really sort of replicates sort of liberal mythology. Supposedly, this Euro-American general shows up in Galveston and tells the enslaved, you're free. When actually what was happening was a a global question. France had seized Mexico, as already noted. You had thousands of black troops who were brought to the Texas-Mexico border to confront French troops. 
And then they became the anvil on which the French troops were pounded as progressive Mexican troops were pressing from the other side. So Juneteenth is really a story about Black-Brown unity. It's really a story of internationalism against French colonialism and French imperialism. I should also mention in this context, the French had brought over thousands of Algerian troops to Mexico at the same time. So it's also a story about Pan-Africanism. But instead, in the next few days, we're going to be subjected to the usual liberal claptrap and the ascendant ideological forces in Black America, as noted, will not have much to contest that. But the questioner is right on with regard to this alliance between people in Haiti and Black Americans. And of course, there's been a lot of books about that, uh, the corpus of literature with regard to solidarity between Haiti and Black Americans is very rich. And I will point the questioner to that literature, and you could start with my book, uh, Confronting Black Jacobins, but don't end with that book. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Professor Horn. And I agree with some of the comments in the chat that it's the global capitalist system, it's white supremacy that we need to get rid of. But we need to also be aware of all the counter-revolutionary measures that are being taken against Black alliance, African alliance with one another. So, for example, if we think about, you know, certain crazy nationalist movements that have emerged, like the ABOS movement in the U.S., which seems to be almost out of the COINTELPRO playbook, right, where the idea is, is that there's something unique about the U.S. African population that makes it distinct from other Black African populations outside of the U.S. And so we have to be very aware of all these other things that are coming up to actually prevent Pan-African corporation against the global white supremacist structure. And we have to really pay attention to that. And we have to know, we have to know the, these histories. And that's the only way we can, we can really help each other break free from the oppression that we're under. Thank you both for those answers. Here is another question. What is your view of China in the context of the future of Haiti? And actually, I would add the present situation in Haiti. So right now, the U.S. president is in Cornwall, England, trying to round up a posse to go after China. And of course, the European Union is going to be hedging, not only because of Germans' trade, Germany's trade with China, selling millions of automobiles, Volkswagens, BMWs, etc., but also the Europeans are worried that Trump, as they say, is just an intermezzo, just an interlude between two eras of Trumpism, uh, 2020 concluding and 2024-25 resuming, if not 2022. So they're hedging. And in any case, they're not very pleased with the fact that uh, in terms of rounding up this posse against China, it seems the United States might want to use Britain, which has just exited from the European Union, as a kind of hammer against the European Union. And you should watch out for that going forward. At the same time, the U.S. press typically has fallen down on the job. The meeting with President Putin in Geneva on Wednesday is really part of the whole strategy. That is to say, trying to woo Moscow away from its apparent alliance with China so as to encircle China. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is that how China got in the passing lane in the first place was the deal that China brokered with U.S. imperialism in the early 1970s on an anti-Moscow basis, which led to massive foreign direct investment in China, which has created this juggernaut 
which is apparently going to leave the North Atlantic countries, including Japan, sprawling under dust. As I said in my 16th century book, it reminds me of the way, of the reason why we're sitting here speaking English, because the then ascended power, Ottoman Turkey, the Muslim force, was so busy contesting Catholic Spain that it cut deals with Protestant London. And then the Ottomans got left sprawling in the dust. Well, part of the ideological underdevelopment of the United States, liberalism, and including major trends in the Black American community, is that whenever they talk about China, they basically just echo the talking points of Washington. China's the new imperialist force in Africa, for example. Whereas if you talk to Africans themselves, they're happy to have a counterweight to North Atlantic imperialism. And you might have seen that the news coming out of the Cornwall summit is that uh, the G7 is going to try to challenge the Belt and Road Initiative of China, uh, which has led to the building of railways from Ethiopia to the coast, the building of power stations. The, I was interviewing a, a comrade from Jamaica the other day who was talking about the highways built by the Chinese uh, in Jamaica, for example. And so I think that uh, in some ways what U.S. imperialism has done, it reminds me of the military official in Vietnam during the war who once said the United States forces had to destroy a village in order to save it. Now, obviously, that makes no sense. But in some ways, in order to confront the Soviet Union, the United States felt it had to destroy U.S. hegemony and put China in the passing lane. But now they're trying to play catch up and trying to bring China to its knees. But if you're around in 2060 or 2070, don't be surprised if that plan does not work. Or alternatively, don't be surprised that once again, it'll boomerang and lead to the rise of a India-Japan duopoly, whose alliance stretches back 2,500 years to the founding of Buddhism. Certainly, Haiti should not ignore what Cuba is doing. And by the way, a part of the attempt to establish an imperialist foothold in Haiti has to do with uh, establishing a beachhead against socialist Cuba. But certainly, Haiti should not ignore what's going on in Cuba with regard to Chinese development projects. And despite its past flirtations with Taiwan, I trust that Port-au-Prince will come to that reasonable conclusion. Jemima, do you want to add something to that? I think Professor Horne covered everything perfectly. I just wanted to add something small just to remind us that one of the things that the work that Moise and the PHTK government that was installed by the Obama administration, which is still in power, was to be able to use this government that was installed to go against China by acknowledging Taiwan, recognizing Taiwan, for example, as well as recognizing Juan Guaido. So we have to remember the purpose that the Moise government or any government that the U.S. puts in serves. And so this is clearly a way to antagonize China, but also to make sure that they put Haitian people in the crosshairs, right? But we also have to remember Haiti is positioned perfectly for a direct route to Asia, right, through the Panama Canal. And so we have to also remember what's going to happen there in terms of U.S. militarization of the Western Hemisphere through increasing use of Southcom in order to find a way to bring together its repression of Latin American leftist governments with its growing buildup for war against China. 
I think these comments about China are really very interesting in terms of Haiti, because I don't think many of us have made that connection. And also the connection that China plays in uh, challenging the United States and its Monroe Doctrine. One of the questions might be, and related to what you just said, has to do with this proposed canal through Nicaragua that presumably China was going to fund. And maybe part of the reason that the United States tried to engineer a coup against that country. Here's another question. Has the U.S. atoned in any way for its theft of $500,000 from the Haitian National Bank in 1914? And is there any movement for reparations for this? Well, to my knowledge, it's not atoned. And don't hold your breath under current conditions for Washington to atone. But obviously, when we surge to power, that will be high on our agenda of rectifying. I agree. The U.S. will never... Has the U.S. atoned for anything? (laughs) Yes, that, that reminds me to speaking of Nicaragua. When the United States was convicted in the international court for its uh, mining of Nicaraguan harbors back in the 1980s. And it just ignored that totally. So I think that that what you said is correct. The United States does not apologize, or if it apologizes, it's a, a weak apology and it doesn't pay. The apologies for using Agent Orange, for example, and the reparations hardly follow that. Here's a question for Professor Pierre. Why didn't the Haitian people become more communist in their struggle against the U.S. and ally themselves with Cuba? One of the main reasons the U.S. supported the brutal devalued dictatorship was its brutal suppression of communists and left-wing parties, right? Complete decimation of the left-wing under this 29-year dictatorship. And so... The Haitian Communist Party was started by Jacques Boumet, the rightist and writer, after he left Cuba and come to the U.S. And this was in the 20s and 30s, and that was quickly stuffed out by the time Duvalier came in. And Duvalier's purpose for the U.S. was to combat, supposedly, communism. So there hasn't been a communist party in Haiti in a long time. There are leftist parties who go underground, especially during the Raoul Sedouas dictatorship right after the ouster of Duvalier. And they're slowly coming back. They're agricultural movements, they're working class movements, rural peasant movements. But an official communist party that can be public is still something that that needs to be worked on. But with Aristide, Cuban doctors have been training, have been working in Haiti, despite all this crazy political situation. And so Aristide University, for example, recently graduated almost 500 doctors, lawyers and nurses And a lot of them were trained by Cuban doctors. And when the UN invaded Haiti in 2004, they took over the medical school. They kicked out the students and the faculty, took over the building, the medical school, and took that for themselves. And what Cuba did was basically send for the Haitian medical students to train them. So Cuba continues to send support to Haiti despite what's going on politically on the island. So here's another question. Why is it that the anti-imperialist solidarity movement with Haiti in the U.S. seems to be weaker than, say, the solidarity movement with the revolutions in Central America? You know, Haiti, Haiti's Black, Haiti's, you know, um, <laughs> Haitian. And, I mean, there is, like, even within the region, 
a lot of anti-Haitian sentiment. And we have to come to terms with that. For me, from migration laws to these states that are white supremacist settler states, right? Like Argentina, Colombia, Brazil, who are anti-Black states. And so we have to be cognizant of that. But we also have to understand a Black nation doesn't get the same sympathy as other revolutions. And so, for example, we fully support Palestinian movements. We think what's going on with the Zionist state and its complete repression of Palestinians is horrible. And we think the continued killing Palestinians is terrible. And it's getting global play. But, you know, the UN brought cholera to Haiti and killed anywhere from 15 to 40,000 people. And there was barely a peep in the, from the international community, right? Basically just killed people, right? They brought a disease and killed people. And so, you know, you have an ongoing occupation. You don't get the same response from Haiti. And I have to say it has something to do with, it has everything to do with its role in the revolution, but also its blackness, you know, and we can't shy away from making that analysis as well. Let me add a point on, on, on reflection and inspired by Professor Pierre's eloquent remarks. We need to recognize that in the hemisphere, a central taproot of conservatism and reactionary thought is based not only in anti-Blackness, but also based on the fact of slave-owning classes not being compensated when their property was seized as a direct result of the Haitian Revolution. And so you can make an argument, therefore, that insofar as the ruling ideas of any society are those of the ruling class, and that as a result of abolition, a influential segment of the ruling class, not least in the United States, is still angry because their property was taken without compensation, and that that then helps to fuel this uh, anti-Haitian sentiment, which, of course, is grounded in anti-Blackness and also grounded in anti-abolitionism. I think the question, the answers here point to a much deeper discussion that needs to be had, I believe, throughout the peace and solidarity movement in the United States. This is a very profound issue. The viciousness and the targeting of Haiti in this hemisphere, above all, we need to have that discussion and we need to find ways of pushing back against it. I think it's really important. Here's yet another question. Are there leaders in the Caribbean today like T.A. Mary Show of Grenada and many, many others in other countries who are pan-Caribbean? Do you think such a movement and consciousness is needed today in Haiti and in other Caribbean nations and why? Well, I think that's embedded in CARICOM, the Caribbean community. Uh, I think that to the extent that it can be expressed by these small island states, such as St. Vincent and the Grenadines, where Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez has been trying to uplift the banner of the late uh, Morris Bishop of Grenada to be in solidarity with Havana and Socialist Cuba. I think the fact that the Caribbean community has tried stoutly over the decades to resist Washington's attempt to extend its blockade and embargo of Cuba throughout the Caribbean. And for the most part, the Caribbean community has resisted that. And as Professor Pierre said, even Haiti, which has not been distinguished with regard to having left of center radical government, 
still has maintained a certain relationship with Havana, at least insofar as medical care is concerned. So I think that to the extent that these small nations can stand up, which has been difficult in recent decades with the changing correlation of forces, I think that they have tried to do so, but of course, they can do better and we can do better. I have to say, when the U.S. sent its Marines to remove Aristide and put him on a plane to send him to Africa, um, (laughs) and the first place they sent him, the first place the plane landed was in the Caribbean. And Jamaica wanted to offer asylum. And Condoleezza Rice, as we know, it's always our intersectional imperialists, right? Condoleezza Rice reached out and said, no, you can't can't have them. We don't want them in in a hemisphere. And so they sent them out. And so this is where you had P.J. Patterson, who was in charge of CARICOM, who tried to stand up against the U.S. And this is when CARICOM used to stand up against the U.S. and was able to intervene and have Aristide fly back and meet with its kids, um, Aristide and Mildred, in Jamaica before he was officially sent back to the Central African Republic. So all this is to say that CARICOM can try and then it gets pushed back from the U.S. And the other thing is to think about the Petrocaribe deal that Venezuela signed with the Caribbean communities, where the U.S. government really bullied them into not accepting this oil in exchange for development from the Venezuelan government. And for those who don't know, Petrocaribe was set up by Hugo Chavez as a way to give oil cheaply to these Caribbean nations um, and uh, at a very low percentage, like 1%. And then these Caribbean nations would not have to pay for the oil for about 25 years and then use the money that they get from selling the oil for development projects. The U.S. was completely against that and actually forced a lot of these governments to actually not do deal with Petrocaribe and then forced the, the Haitian government, once they installed their public governments, to stop dealing with Venezuela and stop dealing in the Petrocaribe funds. And so there's a way that even as these nations try to get from under the U.S. and the U.N., they cannot. And so by now, what you have, you know, you have CARICOM members sitting in on the core group meetings, which tells us that there's a major shift that's happened from P.J. Patterson from 2004 to what's happening to now in terms of CARICOM's power and its ability to stand up to, to the imperialist powers or lack of power for, CAR- for CARICOM. It's interesting that the U.S. projects its own legality on the rest of the world, in this case, uh, the the case that you just mentioned, trying to prevent the Caribbean nations from taking a good deal. And I think that what Gerald said about the uh, discussions in Cornwall right now is the U.S. and its its, uh, European NATO allies are realizing that China is doing something that is very popular and very attractive for the rest of the world in its Belt and Road Initiative and needs to come up with something to counter that. It's not sufficient or it can't be done simply by muscle, military muscle. It has to, the, these countries have to come up with some programs. There's a very interesting change in the dynamic here, in the power dynamic. So here's yet another question. Considering that it is likely that Haiti and the Caribbean more broadly will not have true self-determination until U.S. imperial hegemony ceases to exist as such, can either Dr. Horn or Dr. Pierre speak about Haiti's relationship to the U.S.'s main and rising state opponents today? Here I'm thinking about China, Russia, Iran, etc. Well, I'm not sure if I would agree that 
Haiti will not be able to exercise full self-determination until U.S. imperialism is in decline because that would contradict the experience of its close neighbor, Cuba, which has been able to exercise a kind of self-determination in the, in the face of U.S. imperial hegemony. I mean, certainly I, I would urge and encourage the uh, Haitian regime and Haitian civil society to try to break Haiti's close ties to Washington and try to develop an alternative development path that would incorporate uh, closer relations with China and, and other countries that are not in the U.S. sphere of influence. But obviously, that's easier said than done, given the fact that once you make that break, then you have to beep up your security <laughs> in order to avoid being overthrown. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Professor. And the other thing we have to remember is that Haiti has been able to overthrow, you know, get rid of the imperialist powers before. It was Haitian protests that ended the U.S. occupation in 1934. We have to remember that. It is Haitian protests now, for example, that as recently as last week, Jovenel Moise has put a hold in the referendum. It's no longer happening on June 27th. And so we have to remember that this is not a lost cause and that we've done it before and we'll do it again. And I think this is a moment of counter-revolution and will come through. And I think the empire will fall, the U.S. empire will fall, and it will be the people protesting that will lead that. And so I trust that Haiti will come from under the root of U.S. imperialism. They can try as much as they can. They can't deal with the constant response from the people from the ground up. And that's what we have to remember. And those are the people that create change. I have a question here, and I, I'm not sure what the initials refer to. CRT? CRT talks about structural oppression, but in, it in no way is transformative. It is integrationist in that it aims to create space for Black participation in oppressive institutions as they are. So what gives with the pushback? Is it CRT centering Black folks' narration about our experience in the U.S., if not in the world? Is it this awareness that scares these fools that will engage in an organized global struggle? I have to say I'm lost with this question, but you may better understand it than I do. Well, this is critical race theory, which is the major whipping boy right now of the Republican right and even some of the liberals, as I indicated uh, a second or so ago. Uh, I, ha I happen to be familiar with some of the folks who were in on the ground floor and developing CRT uh, some decades ago. My own impression then was that they were trying to develop a, a critique of white supremacy and U.S. imperialism without necessarily being grouped with Marxists because it was in the height of the Cold War. And of course, if you're grouped with Marxists, you know, you can lose your job and lose your life. But alas, <laughs> apparently hasn't worked because they're in the crosshairs right now. And some of the concepts, I'm sure many of this audience would find uh, not only not objectionable, but common sense, <laughs> which is that racism and white supremacy was baked into the cake post-1776, if not before, and that you shouldn't necessarily see it as a matter of personal predilection, uh, which is 
oftentimes what some are suggesting. And as for myself, I would be hesitant to join into some sort of critique of CRT from the left, because I think that that would only give sustenance uh, to the right wing right now. I think that the folks who are mostly in the academy, by the way, uh, who espouse CRT, they deserve our political support. Of course, off the record or in confidential discussions, we can raise uh, certain issues with them, but I, I don't really see the utility of raising those issues in a public forum. It is interesting. Um, I think you're right that CRT is integrationism. It's a liberal project. And I think Professor Horn is right. I mean, the, there are part of the fascinating things that there are all kinds of leftist, leftist critiques of CRT, as well as the 1619 project that never makes it into the discussion, right? So 1619 is actually not necessarily the date, not the date where you have Black people showing up in the Western Hemisphere, as Professor Horn always says, and that Black people didn't want, weren't looking to be American. That's why they fought with the British, right? They did not want to be enslaved, right? And, they, and so this idea of the U.S. nation was not inevitable. So there are critiques from the left of 1619. What's fascinating is that it's the liberal projects that are getting beat on from the right. And that is an interesting question to think about. But then that makes perfect sense if we think about it, because the liberal integrationist projects were already problematic, right? Because this idea was about wanting to be part of the nation. The right wing does not want you to be part of the nation. And so, <laughs> so that's, you know, so you want to claim it all you want. They don't want you. And so that's really, I think, what's coming out of that. Can anyone speak on the class of bourgeois Arabs and their role in exploiting Haiti past and present? I don't know, Professor, if you want to try, I can start. It's a fascinating question because the Arab Haitians are recent. Well, no, they've been coming to Haiti since the middle of the 19th century. The Levantine population is all over the global south, like on the African continent, in Asia, in Latin America. And so they were like the merchants that were sent in during colonial rule. And then also they would go into the communities and become merchants and sell and set up shops where especially in Africa, where the whites were not doing business with the local populations. And so the Arab Haitian community reached the shores in the 19th century. During that time, the Haiti's business sector was dominated by the mulatto elite. And we have to remember, thinking about Haiti, there is a racial elite, right? There's a like a light-skinned, bourgeois, mixed-race elite that continues to run Haitian politics and business that work in collusion with the imperial nations. They've always worked in collusion with the imperial nations. And so at first, Haiti's business sector was dominated by Italian and German immigrants, which is fascinating. And then they, and then after World War I and World War II, you have them coming in. And then sooner or later, they became more and more prominent and now really run all the business sectors. And I have to say, you know, that the earthquake in 2010 really revived the wealth of the elite. We were slowly disintegrating. A lot of them were not making money and they were land rich and cash poor. And then the 2010 earthquake brought in all this money from the so-called international community into the coffers of this elite. And now out of these elites, we have Palestinian people, people of Lebanese descent, and only a few of them were actually, especially the one, his name Antoine Ismaili, who was a, a wealthy businessman, but also of Palestinian descent, who was an activist and who, who worked on behalf of Haitians, and he was murdered. So it is interesting to think about that elite and what that means in terms of replicating or doing being proxy for white supremacy in Haiti against the Haitian dark-skinned majority. 
And it, it is something that needs to be talked about more because if you look at the bankers of Haiti, the people who run the banks, they are all that European and Arab elite. And that is something that needs to be discussed in, in very specific ways. I don't know if Professor Horn knows more about that. Yeah. Well, just briefly, I mean, I think it's a contradictory population. I mean, if you look at our neighbors to the south, probably the richest man south of the border, Carlos Slim, is part of that Arab diaspora. He's in Mexico. But then you go further south to El Salvador, the leader of the opposition for years was Shafiq Andal, leader of the El Salvadorian Communist Party. And then, of course, the, the current leader of El Salvador, who I would not count necessarily as a comrade, is part of that community. So and you see a similar role unfolding in West Africa and Liberia, Sierra Leone, et cetera. But I think obviously what we need to focus on is the class status and class role of these particular elites. Although I would not necessarily ignore some of the other aspects. I mean, I have to confess that sharing platforms with some of our Arab and Palestinian folks in Southeast Texas, that some of them, until quite recently, they would blanch when I would try to draw parallels between settler colonialism in North America and settler colonialism in historic Palestine. And I was having a hard time trying to figure that out. And I think that many of these folks of Arab descent who migrate to North America because of their melanin deficiency and because of their presentation, uh, they can fold themselves within the ranks of melanin deficient generally and therefore gain real or imagined privilege, which maybe they feel will disintegrate if they're identifying with Black people in North America who, of course, historically have been the antagonists of the elites. So it's a very complicated question, and uh, I would like to see more intelligent writing about it. I wanted to say quickly, following President Warren, that we have to also think about the melanin deficient or light-skinned elite from the U.S., and in Africa and the Caribbean that actually perpetuate this everywhere. So if we think about the Kamala Harris's, the Colin Powell's, there's a way that you have this in all these societies that play the neocolonial role on behalf of the more melanin deficient populations against the darker masses. Dr. Pierre, is there any way of getting support from the African Union? I don't know. I, the African Union is not a radical organization because, you know, most African governments are not radical governments. And so the African Union is very muted. And what's interesting to me is, for example, when the UN Security Council agreed with the U.S. and France to send a military occupation to consolidate the coup d'etat in Haiti in 2004, the head of the UN was Kofi Annan, right, an African and so I, I just think about how the African Union itself does not have necessarily progressive politics. And I think we have to wait for a more progressive African Union and a one more powerful to be able to say something about what's happening to the global Black communities in the Western Hemisphere and elsewhere. So here's a question from one of our colleagues in Puerto Rico. What is the relationship like between Haiti and Puerto Rico? 
I mean, I'm not sure what I have to add other than, you know, Haiti is a neo-colony, excuse me, Puerto Rico is a neo-colony of the United States. There's serious discussion about it becoming the 51st or 52nd state, that is to say after D.C. There's not necessarily the kind of autonomy, particularly in foreign policy, that one would expect uh, Puerto Rico to exercise. So other than sort of person-to-person uh, contacts or civil society to civil society contact, I'm not sure what more I would have to add to that particular question. There's another uh, question. Why would the New York Times promote the 1619 Project? It's an attempt to replay LBJ's civil rights and broader immigration for international consumption to make the USA appear democratic and non-racist in order to fight communism. While this was done, LBJ accelerated the genocidal racist wars in Vietnam. It also provided cover for Israel to develop a nuclear weapon capability and launched the 1967 war. So this goes back to the the question, why would the New York Times promote the 1619 Project? It looks to me like that person gives his own answer. Yeah, I don't agree with the premise. I think that the attempt to reframe the history of the United States in the context of slavery and racism has struck a sensitive nerve from the right wing, which is why it's come under attack. As noted, I have certain issues with it with regard to starting this colonial project in 1619 as opposed to decades earlier. I think as well that being an enterprise for profit, the New York Times is seeking to cultivate new markets. And given the fact, as I noted, that the left has fallen down on its job in terms of providing an adequate analysis of the origins of the United States basically swallowing whole the creation myth, it was inevitable that certain Black people who have reason to be disaffected across class and status lines in the context of the New York Times seeking new markets would seek to put forward a new analysis because there was a vacuum to be filled that the left did not fill. And I would say the same thing. For Raul Peck's um, multi-parts documentary series, Exterminate All the Brutes, which soars far beyond any sort of analysis of the U.S. left. So instead of querying the New York Times, I think the question should be, why hasn't the left in the United States stepped up to the plate and put forward analyses that would appeal particularly to the Black community as opposed to swallowing what I called in an article that I asked the questioner to look up, amounting to a kind of left-wing white nationalism, which is increasingly being rejected and repudiated. I'm looking at uh, another question here. Should the last ruling on TPS regarding Haiti be seen as a victory, even if small, or does it further complicate matters? I want to answer that because if you all don't know, TPS means temporary protected status, which itself was never a solution to the migration situation for people who are undocumented in this country. But it was it was giving temporary protected status to some some groups of migrants who if there's problems in their country that they can't they won't be deported immediately and they'll be temporarily protected. And, you know, Obama used that quite a bit. And, and, you know, this is the problem with the liberal response instead of giving migrants access to citizenship, 
they put a bandaid on it and do this temporary protective status. So the recent ruling regarding TPS for Haiti and Haitians by the Biden administration is that Haitian migrants will get temporary protective status. But this is, if you remember, from January 20th up until this TPS ruling, Biden has deported more Haitians the first 100 days than Donald Trump did in a year in his term, right? And so we have to remember that all these Haitians are already deported. But then the other thing is just last week, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously, and this is with liberals in, in it, including Elena Kagan and, you know, Sotomayor, they ruled unanimously that those who come to the U.S. irregularly could never become U.S. citizens because there could never be a pathway to citizenship. So if you grant TPS, which is a temporary stop in deportation, while the Supreme Court, both liberals and conservatives in there, say that you can never have pathway to citizenship, this protective status is only for, what, a year, six months, and then the deportations will continue. So how is that? I don't understand how that is actually a positive or anything. If anything, it represents the backstabbing of the liberals, of the liberal elite in this country. They're, I mean, I wouldn't even call them the conservatives. It's completely outrageous to think about CPS and under Biden to see the Supreme Court do what it did and basically dash the hopes of all these migrants. And that's not just for Haitians. That's for all these groups that are running away from U.S. imperialism in their countries and trying to find a better life. I want to wrap this up with a question that I hope can be answered very quickly and then just a, a general statement. I think we need to build a network, a solidarity network in the United States that's compelling and equivalent to some of the other solidarity networks that were, that were mentioned with regard to Latin America. Can either of you say, here's something to join? Here are the solidarity networks that we're building around Haiti. Well, you can join a local chapter of the U.S. Peace Council and then try to develop a committee that focuses on Haitian solidarity that could then draw on the vast resources of the World Peace Council, which is an international body with affiliates and chapters globally. Certainly, you could ally with Black Alliance for Peace, of which Professor Pierre is a leading member and coordinates Haitian affairs. Certainly, within your union or neighborhood committee or tenants union or student union, you can do similarly. So I think that there are many potential avenues. I agree. I think there's a lot to do. There's the Black Alliance for Peace Solidarity Network for Haiti and the Americas team, which is which began as the Haiti team and now is expanded to Haiti and the Americas with specific focus on Colombia and Brazil, especially what's happening in Colombia today, but also seeing the connection between those. And I think that that's an important organization to join. It's for Africans, but we have a solidarity network that's attached to it for non-Africans. And there's a lot of, you know, other organizations. It's the Cuba, solid, you know, the sanctions, um, the stops the sanctions against Cuba, solidarity networks that are there, and anything that's anti-imperialist and for peace, I think we should all be out there. We need to be out there organized. We need to educate our communities. We need to know what's going on in order to fight it. And those things are important. Political education is, is important as well. I think we need to get our hands dirty and fight this movement that is Western imperialism. Thank you. I, I completely agree. I want to just finish by saying that uh, the U.S. Peace Council and the Black Alliance for Peace work together closely 
the national organizer of the Black Alliance, is also on the U.S. Peace Council exec. I want to thank Gerald Horn and uh, Jamima Pierre for their excellent presentations and their very solid responses to these questions. I also want to thank Bama Azad, who really helped and led the organizing of this event. Finally, please, as Gerald has said, join the U.S. Peace Council. The website is uspeacecouncil.org. Follow the U.S. Peace Council on Facebook. Participate or join in the Solidarity Network with the Black Alliance for Peace and or join the Black Alliance for Peace. You can find that, find all of these on the internet. And finally, thank you all for participating and for these excellent questions. We look forward to the next webinar. I don't know what it will be, but uh, we will have them. Thank you. Thank you all.